Genesis 41. The life of Joseph seems like one disappointment after another. He is loved by his father, but then hated by his brethren. God promises exaltation, but then ends up a slave in Egypt. He works hard and rises to be the overseer of Potiphar's house, but then is unjustly imprisoned. He interprets and helps the cupbearer, but then the cupbearer forgets him and he remains in prison. The life of Joseph seems like one disappointment after another. However, the key word in the past sentences is this. Seems. Seems means to appear. It appears like a disappointment, but the reality is all these things are God's appointments for good. We speak of a mirage in the desert, someone thirsty, and it appears like an oasis, but the reality is not. Joseph's life is the opposite, where it looks like it's barren, it looks like it's a disappointment, but it's only an appearance. Because God is working all these things for Joseph's good. In chapter 41, we see the transition from the seemingly disappointment to what God has been doing for good all along. In verses 1 to 36, we see Joseph being released from prison to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Then in verses 37 to the end of the chapter, Joseph is exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh himself. And so today, we will focus on verses 1 to 36, both for studying the rest of the verses, the Lord willing, next Sabbath. And the beginning of Joseph's exaltation in these verses can be summarized under three headings. One, Pharaoh's dreams. Two, Joseph's interpretation. And three, the wise deliverance. First of all then, Pharaoh's dreams. The chapter opens by explaining how long Joseph has been in prison since the cupbearer left. And it came to pass at the end of two full years. That's a long time. Imagine Joseph's experience. He's woke up in the morning. The butler and the baker have their dreams. He interprets the dreams in three days. Cupbearer, you will be raised out of prison and you will be restored to your position 
and please remember me when you're released. Remember me because I have done nothing wrong and I was unjustly put in this prison. Remember me. Three days passes. It's fulfilled. The cupbearer is released. And Joseph is waiting. Then the next day. And the next day. And a week goes by. Then a fortnight. Then a month. Then six months. And a year. And 18 months. And the cupbearer's forgotten him. And he's left in the pit of prison. Remember all this is under God's hands. Why would God ordain that the cupbearer forgets about Joseph? John Calvin has, I think, a very wise rationale for it. He says, the Lord exercised his servant not only by delay of long continuance, but also by another kind of temptation because he took all human grounds of hope away from him. Joseph, do not trust in man and do not put your hope in man. Put your trust and hope only in God. And so Joseph, day after day waiting, the transition of his mind is clear. Remember me, butler. Do not forget about me, butler. Then as the days and the weeks progress, he forgets about that and says, Oh God, remember me. Oh God, do not forget me. Because my hope of deliverance is not in the cupbearer's testimony before the Pharaoh, but it's in God and God alone. Is this a lesson for someone in this church? Is there someone here putting too much trust and hope in the means rather than the God of means? Whether it's people or circumstances or things, is there someone in this house who's putting all their eggs in the basket of a man or a circumstance or a thing? Put not your trust and hope in princes or chariots or men or doctors or medicine or insert. But put your hope and trust wholly, completely, entirely in God. That's a lesson for us all. But God will fulfill his accomplishment. And he'll do it through Pharaoh. And it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh dreamed. Pharaoh is a king of Egypt. As we said last time, uh, originally they were just called kings of Egypt. And Pharaoh was the name of the royal palace. But in time, the king and the palace become so synonymous, they start to refer to the kings as the pharaoh um, it'd be like calling the queen buckingham palace or the president the white house and here we have real history 
I'm sure we've all, whether we're kids or older, have been fascinated by ancient Egypt. The pyramids, the statues, the culture. And we know who this is. Most commentators, most archaeologists agree. This is Pharaoh Sesotris I, the second pharaoh of the 12th dynasty. You can go to the London Museum, uh, the Berlin Museum, the Cairo Museum and see statues of this pharaoh. And at this time, it's a time of greatness. It's a time of uh, an expansion of the kingdom and riches and wealth and power. And God will use this pagan king for his own purposes. This reminds us of Proverbs 21. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water he turneth it whithersoever he wills. God can use anyone. He can use a pharaoh. An Artaxerxes. A Cyrus. A Darius. He can use any king, any governor, any monarch, any prime minister, any president. He can use anyone to accomplish his will. A.W. Pink. God is above all and can use all for the accomplishment of his grand and unsearchable designs. It is sweet to be able thus to trace our Father's hand and counsel in everything. Sweet to know that all sorts of agents are at his sovereign disposal. Angels, men and devils are all under his omnipotent hand and all are made to carry out his purposes. That helps us to know even the most wicked, debauched, powerful, wealthy ruler God is able to even use them to accomplish his purposes. Are our prayers too small? Are our prayers only, God, please deliver us. God, please help us not to uh, be destroyed. Why can't we flourish in this evil age? Why is it the church and the gospel cannot prosper in this wicked generation? Why are Christians filled with small defeatist prayers? It's because we're not grasping the Lord is truly sovereign. Let our prayers be big. And let us ask God to turn the heart of our own government like a river whithersoever he wills. But God gives Pharaoh two dreams. The first dream is set, it says here, at the river. But this is a Hebrew, uh, this is an actually Egyptian word borrowed and put into the Hebrew. It's the Nile River. That great river that's so important to the life and culture of Egypt. And at the Nile River, there are seven beautiful 
fat cows. And when it says meadow here, it is the lush roots, grass, reeds beside the, the Nile River. And these seven fat cows come and eat in full. And then there are seven literally evil looking thin cows. This is a gauntly thin appearance. And they come up and they eat up the fat cows. And when a thin cow eats a fat cow, the expectation is the thin cow becomes fat. But in the second recollection of the dream, Pharaoh says, the thin cows remain thin still. Pharaoh awakes. Then he goes back to grain. And there are seven well-looking, fat, healthy grains. And then you have seven evil-appearing, thin ones. And again, the thin ones eat the fat ones, and the thin ones remain thin. Pharaoh awakes, and this is not just a bad dream, a weird dream. He is absolutely shaken to the core. In verse 8 it says, And it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. Literally, his heart was thrusted. His inwards part was impelled. This is like Nebuchadnezzar's response to God's dream in Daniel 4.5. I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts upon my bed troubled me. Pharaoh knows something is different about this dream. He's shaken, he's alarmed, he's in fear, and he doesn't understand it. So he calls in the experts. He calls in all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. The magicians here are a class of priests. They're given to the magic arts, as we would call them. Soothsayers. Visionaries, interpreters of dreams. They would do their training in a palace called the House of Life. They would garner magical skill in interpreting dreams. And even to this day, if you go to the Cairo Museum, there are two big books from this time period teaching how to interpret dreams. And these magicians are the people in Exodus 7 and following who are under another pharaoh seeking to replicate the power of God under Moses' ministry. But then we have wise men. Think of the philosophers and the educated men of the day. And so Pharaoh shares his, shares his dreams with the experts in dream interpretations and the philosophers of his kingdom and what does it say 
There was none that could interpret them unto Pharaoh. None of them understood. None of them could interpret. It fails. God's teaching us a lesson here. The mysteries of God can only be understood by God and to them whom he reveals. The natural man in sin cannot understand, discern or interpret rightly God's revelation and will. Man likes to think himself wise. But God makes the wisdom of this world foolishness by his own wisdom. Isaiah 19. Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. The counsel of the wise counsellors of Pharaoh is become brutish. How say ye unto Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise the son of the ancient kings. Great men, great wisdom, great literature, great philosophy is foolishness to our God. The truth is the natural man cannot discern the revelation of God except God himself reveal it to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God. So that we may know the things that are freely given to us of God. So the natural man reading the Bible. The natural man under the preaching of the word. The natural man hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot understand. He understands words and grammar and syntax and vocabulary. But he doesn't understand the meaning. I remember reading of William Wilberforce's life. He was great friends with the Prime Minister, William Pitt, an incredibly intelligent man. And William Wilberforce, of course, was an evangelical Christian. And as a good evangelical Christian, he would witness to the people he knows. And he would witness to William Pitt again and again and again. And William Pitt never responded with faith. But one of the most famous preachers of the times and one of William Wilberforce's favourite preachers was visiting London. And he was super excited. Imagine your favourite preacher is coming to Greenville and they're going to preach the gospel to the lost. And you're thinking of all the people you know who don't understand the gospel. If they're going to understand the gospel, it's going to be under this man's preaching. And so William Pitt accepts William Wilberforce's invitation. They come to the church the sermons preached and they leave and they walk together 
And while your mobile force is so excited, and say, isn't that just wonderful what he said? Wasn't that amazing what he spoke of, of the grace of God? And after five minutes of speaking, William Wilberforce says, what did you think of it? And this is William Pitt's response, quote, You know, William, I had not the slightest idea what that man has been talking about. It wasn't because of his intelligence. It's because of his nature. I remember preaching a sermon and I preached and was saying good works are nothing before God. There's nothing you can do good before God. Salvation is a free gift of God alone. Finished the service, was speaking to people and one woman came up to me and says, I loved what you said, that if we do good, God accepts us anyway complete opposite what I was preaching why is that because that dear woman was still a natural woman and this is for today the only way we can savingly understand the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ is if the Holy Spirit comes to us and helps us to understand to understand our sinfulness before a holy, holy, holy God. To understand that our good works are worthless before a just God and a perfect law. That the only way of salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. And through his life, death, burial and resurrection, faith alone in Christ alone saves. And when the Spirit of God comes upon a man or a woman or a child and they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ because they understand the gospel, the reason why is because the Spirit of God is blessing you. The Spirit of God is revealing, enlightening and quickening you. And therefore, you have his wisdom. So brother and sister in Christ, why is it you do savingly understand the gospel? It's because God has revealed it to you by the Spirit. Be humble and worship your God. And to those who do not know, we have to pray and plead. The Spirit of God would be poured out so that they would understand God's revelation in Jesus Christ. But secondly, Joseph's interpretation. Although the magicians and the wise men do not understand the dreams, God has been preparing a man to understand these dreams. In verses 9 to 11, we have the butler again, that cupbearer. And suddenly... He remembers Joseph. Verse 9. Then spake the chief butler unto Pharaoh saying. I do remember my faults this day. Here the cupbearer. Remembers there's someone who can interpret this dream. 
and die of sinned. The word false here is literally sinned. Pharaoh, do you remember when you cast me in the baker into prison? Well, when we were there, we had dreams, and there was this Hebrew man, and he accurately interpreted our dreams. And for two years now, I forgot about him. This is a great sin. As James 4 says, if you know to do good, but do not do it, it is sin. Sin is not simply what we do, commission. Sin is also when we fail to do what we should do, omission. And here is a great omission. Pharaoh hears about this Hebrew in the prison and he rushes to release him. Verse 14, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon, and he shaved himself and changed his raiment, and he came in unto Pharaoh. The word dungeon here is pit. The same word as the pit of 37. Joseph is called. Hastily here means he made him to run. So imagine the scene. It's another day. He gets up. He does whatever he's to be doing in the prison. And then the door opens. And a servant comes and says, Joseph, run. Run to Pharaoh. Take off your prison clothes. Shave your face. Put on new clothing. And come from the pit into the presence of Pharaoh. This is a wonderful picture of resurrection. As our Lord Jesus Christ was in the pit and then God raised him out of the pit. And it's also a, a picture of conversion. In Psalm 40 it says, He took me from the fearful pit and from the miry clay and on a rock he set my feet, establishing my way. He put a new song in my mouth, our God to magnify. Many shall see it and shall fear, and on the Lord rely. When sinners are in the miry pit of sin, and God calls us to hastily come to Jesus Christ, and now, by faith, we are in the presence of the King of Kings. And as he comes before Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, I hear you have the interpretation of dreams. Now think about what many men would say at this point. I've been in prison for three years now in total. Two years after the other man was released. This is my chance. I can do it. I have the skill. I have the ability. To curry favour. To be of value. But not Joseph. Verse 15. Joseph, sorry, Pharaoh said unto Joseph, 
I have dre- uh, sorry, verse um, yeah, verse sixteen. Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, "It is not in me. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't interpret dreams. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. I can't do it, but God, who is the source of all the mysteries." He can reveal it through me to you. See his humility still? See how he's still looking to the Lord God? It's the same with Daniel. When Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed with the skill of Daniel's interpretation skills. And what does Daniel say? Not me. Daniel chapter 2 verse 28 There is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king what shall be. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living. And the same for the Apostle Paul. We read the Apostle Paul in the Bible through Acts and the Epistles and we're amazed at the Apostle Paul. The success, the ministry, the fruit, the teaching, the preaching. And Paul says, not me, not me. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace was bestowed upon me. Was not in vain, but I laboured more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. This is the mark of any true Christian. This is the mark of any true minister of God. Not me. Not me. It's easy to say solidello gloria to the glory of God alone. It's easy to say I'm a Calvinist. Praise be to the glory of his grace. But it's another thing to actually be it. There are many Calvinists who are very proud of their humility. But true Calvinists are truly humble men and women. We truly know that all the salvation, all the grace, all the ability, all the gifts that God may have given are holy and entirely from him. And he can take away any time. And therefore we say, Psalm 115, Lord, not unto us, not unto us but to thee be the glory alone. And when a Christian truly feels that, truly feels that, that's when they're best place. Because their prayer life is full of adoration. It's full of praise and thanksgiving. They sing the Psalms with joy because they're giving true praise to the God who's given all things. And when they live out their lives and there's other Christians who don't understand things. They're not prideful. They don't mock them and put them down. How silly, how foolish, how stupid is that Christian over there for not believing in limited atonement or covenant theology. Or such a prideful statement is not at the heart of a true Calvinist. But except the spirit of God reveal, only then can we know the truth. So let us all be humble, 
and let us know it's only by the grace of God are we anything. But then Pharaoh explains his dreams and then Joseph interprets the dreams under the influence of God. Joseph says the two dreams have one meaning. The number seven in each case represents seven years. The seven beautiful fat cows and the seven fat stalks of grain represent seven years of plenty, full abounding harvests. But the seven thin cows and the seven thin stalks of grain represent seven years of famine. And the fact that the thin cows and grains eating the fat cows and grain remain thin is because this famine is going to be so grievous, so desperate, so severe, you'll completely forget any blessing of the plenty. And then Joseph says this dream is double because it's established and sure, guaranteed, put the stamp on it, and it's coming very, very soon. And at the end of verse 1, he says it's going to be very grievous. In this message, we have the principal teachings for those who are unawakened sinners. Not all sinners are the same. Some sinners are awakened. They have a conscience that's alive and aware of God and eternity and judgment. They're not careless and they're not thoughtless. And they come to church and they're aware of these things and they feel these things and they're convicted by these things but they're not yet saved, they've not yet come to Christ. But there's also unawakened sinners. Sinners who are in church. Sinners who are careless and thoughtless about Judgment Day. They're not convicted. They're under the preaching of the law, the preaching of hell, the preaching of judgment the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of grace, and none of these things really affect them. But what really affects them is to live in this world for pleasure. The kind of people like the rich fool in Luke 12. I will say to my soul, soul thou hast much goods laid for many years, Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And their, their purview is the seven years of plenty. No worries. Fill my life with plenty. Whatever my heart desires, because there's plenty, I can take it and enjoy it. But then God says the years of plenty will come to an end. 
and in the years of a grievous famine and perishing and death will come to you. And this is what unawakened sinners need. Not the gospel, not grace, not the love of Jesus and not the cross. They need only the seven years of famine to be preached. Because what does God say to that well fat fool? But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? I require your soul. You're going to die. You're going to enter my presence. I'm judging you guilty and I'm sending you hell and those seven years of plenty all the eat, drink and be merry is worthless. Is there an unawakened sinner here who's in church and hears the preaching from this pulpit who hears the Bible and family worship and you're unaffected. God is saying to you. In these seven years of plenty. You think your whole life is ahead of you. It will come to an end. And there will only be famine. And perishing. And death. And judgment. And hell. And you need to remember, as God says, my spirit shall not strive with you forever. You hear the good news. You're under the word. You're under your parents. You're in family worship. I am actually giving you a blessing more than others. And I, spirit is saying to you, believe in Christ. Repent of your sins. Turn to me. And you resist and resist and resist. And your conscience is dulled because of seven years of plenty pleasure those years are coming to an end it might end next week it might end next year it might end in 50 years time but it shall end and then only death and judgment and hell and so God says not tomorrow not next week not next year but today is the day of salvation Today is the day of grace. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Today is the day to save your soul from hell. Thirdly, the wise deliverance. In verses 33 to 36, we have the glory of God's wisdom. We have the glory of God's wisdom in preparing Joseph. And then we have the glory of God's wisdom in Joseph's plan. First of all, the glory of God's wisdom in preparing Joseph. Everything Joseph has experienced from 37 to now has been God preparing him for this moment. The humility, the patience, the submission, the hard work. The, the wisdom, the overseeing of Potiphar's house and the overseeing of the fellow prisoners. And now he's raised from the pit of prison 
There's a very grievous famine coming. What is to be done? Joseph knows because God has prepared him. And we don't know exactly what Joseph was thinking about during these times. But I'm pretty sure if you were to say in verse 33, Joseph, what do you think about the last 13 years of your life? He has done all things well. He has done all things well. Because everything I've experienced since I was 17 to now, God was preparing me for this moment. And that's what God does for us. As we've been preaching throughout this story, everything you have experienced for 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, whatever, He has done all things well. He's preparing you for the next calling and the next challenge and the next work. You would not be you without your past experiences. Why? Because God has been preparing you all along. But then secondly, we see God's wisdom in Joseph's plan. Joseph says what you need is someone who is discreet and wise. Discreet means someone who has skill, discernment and insight. <coughs> Someone wise is someone who not only has knowledge, but has the skill of applying knowledge to the right situation in life. You need to set this man over all Egypt. You need someone to take control and guide and set things in place. During the seven years of plenty... You need to go through all the land of Egypt and take one-fifth of all the harvest. 20%. Take the 20% and store it in the major populations, the cities, for access. Now keep it all for the time of the seven years of famine. And when these seven years of famine come... You have all this available for the people. And then in verse 37, Pharaoh is pleased with this plan of Joseph. And this will be the plan, as we'll see next time, that will save the Egyptians, will save other nations, and will save the covenant family. But here we have a picture, an illustration of salvation. Because in salvation we all face the famine. The famine of our souls. The famine of goodness. The famine of righteousness barrenness and deadness because of our sin and salvation is in a greater Joseph it is one who is truly discreet and truly wise even the Lord Jesus Christ Jesus 1 Corinthians 1 is the wisdom of God and in Proverbs chapter 8 verse 14 Wisdom says, counsel is mine, sound wisdom, I am understanding, I have 
strength. That's the Lord God himself. And he looks at the famine of souls and he says, I am going to glorify my wisdom and save sinners. In Isaiah 9, 6, who is Jesus? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, just like Joseph. And one of his names is Counselor, Wise Advisor. And when he comes incarnate, who is he? Colossians 2, 3, in whom are the treasures of all wisdom and knowledge. And he has come to dispense the salvation of God in a particular way. To die on a cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. Christ the wisdom of God. How can God be both just and merciful? How can God reconcile two infinitely distant natures the Lord Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God he reconciles two infinitely distant natures in the incarnation of the one person in a divine nature united to the human nature he is able to be just and merciful because on the cross all the sins of all his people are laid on him so that all the sins are punished. And through the punishment of their sins, mercy is given for the full, free forgiveness of sins. So that when we believe in Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ is unto us wisdom. Wisdom. He's the righteousness of God. We need to be justified in God's sight. He is the holiness so that we can be sanctified. And he is the redemption of body and soul so that we would live forever and ever in heaven. And so the wisdom of Joseph here is simply teaching us of the greater Joseph with the greater wisdom and salvation. And the wisdom of Christ preaches to sinners, come unto me. Proverbs 1.20 Wisdom crieth without, she uttereth her voice in the streets, she crieth in the chief place of concourse, in the opening of the gates, in the city she utters her words, turn at my reproof, Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell in safety. That's Christ speaking to you. He's speaking in this house. He's speaking to your mind. He's speaking to your heart. He's speaking to your conscience. I am crying to you, turn from your sins. Turn from your wicked ways. Come to me. I will pour out my spirit. I will forgive all your sins. I will make you a son of God. I will give you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
I will give you heaven, an inheritance undefiled and fades not away. I will give you assurance of love and hope and joy. Come unto me, I am wisdom. Do not be a fool. Be wise by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Joseph gives this plan, he is then exalted, fulfilling the promise of God. And we'll look at that next week, the Lord willing. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we glorify thy wisdom. We bless thee that as Jesus in the pit and raised, so thy spirit has raised us from the pit to stand established. Thou hast put a new song in our mouth and our new song is to magnify thee O Lord, in Christ we pray.